Hi, I'm Luisa Portugal. And I'm Ria Almeida. This is our show where we talk about coronavirus-related policy issues as we try to navigate this crazy pandemic with you. This week, we will only have one guest in the CoronaCast, Ashley Emery, a second-year MPA student talking to us about reproductive rights amidst the pandemic. Welcome to CoronaCast, a Wagner Review podcast series. Hey, Ria, this week we have to start talking about the second COVID stimulus package. It was the biggest news of the week for the U.S. After that locking Congress between Democrats and Republicans, on Saturday, Trump just went ahead and bypassed the legislative to sign into effect a series of executive orders. You know that thing about checks and balances and retreat powers? Yep. There you have it. And now this is going to get more complicated. So let's take it one step at a time. Okay, so as policy students, so many aspects of this entire incident are driving us crazy. We're in the middle of a health and economic crisis. Over 32 million people in the US have filed for unemployment claims during this pandemic. And the country's GDP has plunged by 32% in the second quarter of 2020. And still, partisan politics wins over everything else, as disputes between both political parties ended in a complete stalemate in Congress over the second economic stimulus package. Yeah, it was honestly hard to watch the policy paralysis standoff. The Democrats on one end, led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, asked for a 3.2 trillion package and the Republicans counter offer led by White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Treasury Secretary Steve Munchin was a little lower, around 1 trillion. As you can see, this is quite a difference in values and a good representation of how poles apart the parties are. Yeah, that is a huge dollar difference. And the policy points were also pretty contentious. As we mentioned in the last episode, schools reopening has been a big dispute between the two parties. Republicans wanted to allocate most of school funding to those that will reopen in person in the fall, while Democrats wanted a part of the aid to go to schools that are unable to reopen so they can spend money on improving their distance learning programs. I have to say this isn't surprising at all. Honestly, it's especially ridiculous considering of the nation's 25 school districts, only five plan to come back in person despite President Trump's efforts to push it. And continuing on, on unsurprising points, the aid to the states was a point of contention. With the Democrats wanting $1 trillion to go to local governments, while Trump's offer was closer to $150 billion. Other splits were over childcare and food stamps and, of course, unemployment claims. Ah, this is where it really gets interesting. Trump, when he decided to skip Congress and sign in executive orders, decided to dole out unemployment benefits of $400, which is a reduction from the earlier $600. Trump said 25% of that money would have to come from states. 
which honestly are already scrambling to make ends meet. And Governor Cuomo actually tweeted saying it would be simply impossible for states to do this. The rest of the 75%, according to Trump, would be redirected from disaster relief money of the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Now, here's the real funny part. A Washington Post analysis estimates that those funds would only last about two months, while Trump's order claims to be until December. Yes, it's hilarious. I'm laughing on the inside, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> no, but really, it's interesting because Trump's tropical counterpart, Bolsonaro, he found very quickly that paying money directly to the population is a great way to make your popularity rise, while otherwise you just have been plummeting. Um, Bolsonaro decided to extend the emergency payment in Brazil, and he saw a significantly rise in popularity among the lower-income sectors of the population for the first time. Even though this could be seen as a big betrayal for his neoliberal promises of tax reform and, and cutting government spendings, it seems that Trump's kind of going the other way. So let's see what impact this will have come November. Yep, definitely curious to see how this is going to impact the polls. But back to the Congress dispute, the Democratic Party also threatened to file lawsuits against Trump for his new executive orders, since constitutional power to fund programs actually lies within Congress. I mean, the president skipping due democratic process to unilaterally sign in orders that honestly don't make that much sense and might not even be constitutional. I guess it's a good lesson for us policy students in the Murphy's Law of Policymaking. And you know, it's not just about this one seamless policy, right? It's about the impact of the president's agenda-driven narrative on the overall spread of the pandemic. And the worst part is, it isn't even evidence-based. And we all know that we are data nerds. <laughs> this was quite apparent in a recent interview that the president did with Axios journalist Jonathan Swan. In this now infamous interview, I think Swan showed great restraint in patient as he attempted to keep the interview on track, though I have to say <laughs> a lot of the answers sounded incoherent at best and the data being discussed was, let's say, not clear. And, you know, there are those that say, you can test too much. You do know that. Who says that? Oh, just read Who? the manuals, read the books. Manuals? Read the what books. Manuals? Read the books. What books? What testing does? Who, no, no, I'm sorry. Just, wait a minute. Who said let, me, let me explain. Here's another clip from the same interview. I'm talking about death. Well, you look it's at death. Up. Death is way down from where it was. It's, it's a thousand death. a day. It was two and a half thousand. It went down to 500. Now it's going up death. again. Excuse me. Where it was is much higher than where it is right now. It went down and it went up spiked, again. But now it's going down again. It's, it's going, going down in Arizona. It's going down in Florida. Nationally it's going, going down in Texas. Oh, that was hard to listen to. Honestly, I think one thing the coronavirus pandemic has taught the entire world is the importance of sound, coherent data collection and analysis. So much of our emergency response policies and strategies have been very dependent on clear case numbers and dissecting those numbers by region, by age and other demographic. And as a policy student and data nodes, as you very rightly said, 
when I see a global leader randomly poking at graphs on sheets of paper and not being able to explain them with any clarity, it's honestly really worrying. Yeah, it's boring and it's deeply frustrating. One part that I found really um, interesting as well was when Trump was trying to convince Jonathan Swan that the media should be reporting the relatively low death rate in the United States, completely ignoring the fact that if you have death rate of, let's say, 2% lower than the other countries, but your infection rate is, I don't know, 10 times higher, you see a lot more cases, a lot more deaths, and a pandemic that it's absolutely not under control. And as this mess continues, there's no real end in sight anytime soon. Pfizer and Moderna have both started phase three trials with 30,000 participants each, which is great. But the WHO is very careful to warn us that this does not mean we're nearly there yet. And still, Trump announced this week that he thinks the vaccine should be ready in time for elections in November. But of course, the gatekeeper of all true facts, our one and only favorite, (laughs) Dr. Fauci, has corrected the president, saying that the timeline for the vaccine to be ready, more realistically, is early 2021, still earlier than we thought, after which Operation Warp Speed will come into effect and hopefully express manufacture 300 million vaccines for widespread administration in the US. Well, it can't get here soon enough, let's say that. Honestly, COVID news just keeps getting worse. A new study in South Korea revealed that about 30% of people who get COVID are actually asymptomatic, making it that much more difficult to contain and trace it. We are also seeing European countries like Germany and France having resurgence of the coronavirus, setting up fears of a potential second wave there. And if all of this wasn't exciting enough, This week, the U.S. number one hit a new landmark as it surpassed 5 million coronavirus cases. But don't worry, Luisa, our countries are not that far behind either. Are you telling me Brazil is still second place? Yes, congratulations on the silver medal. Brazil with 3 million cases, second on the list, and my country, India, a little behind, but catching up with 2 million bagging the bronze medal. Almost there, almost there. (laughs) We're at a historic moment in the world's COVID journey, but also in our Corona-cast journey. Yep. We must share with our avid listeners, all six of you, (laughs) (laughs) that this is the last episode of our series. But don't worry, your favorite dynamic duo is going to be back with a brand new policy podcast series very soon. So stay tuned. And on that note, let's head to our interview section. Ashley Emery is a second-year MPA graduate student at NYU Wagner and a Senior Policy and Advocacy Fellow at Jewish Woman International, where she focuses on reproductive freedom and contraceptive equity policy. She has experience working with reproductive health, rights, justice, advocacy, and electoral politics, 
in organizations such as Vote Run Lead and the International Women's Health Coalition. Thank you for coming here, Ashley. Let's start off this interview. Can you walk us through how the pandemic has changed the landscape when it comes to reproductive rights? The pandemic really laid bare systemic failures and inequities in our healthcare system, including our delivery of reproductive healthcare. And it's important to note that so many of those inequities in reproductive healthcare are by design. Abortion is essential and time-sensitive healthcare. Truly anything less is, is dangerous and dehumanizing to pregnant people. And nevertheless, conservative politicians deemed abortion to be non-essential in the middle of a global pandemic to restrict access to pregnant people in need of reproductive care. Governors in 11 states actually, mostly in the South, issued executive orders that prohibited abortion. However, since abortion is essential to individuals' health, most courts prohibited the orders from, from taking effect. It's important to note, of course, that pro-choice governors issued executive orders in uh, 23 states that did protect access to reproductive health care um, during the you know, early uh, weeks of the global pandemic. Even though cases are on the rise in the U.S., all states are moving into different phases of reopening. This also means that health facilities are back to performing non-essential activities. But I have to imagine that this has not stopped conservatives from threatening reproductive rights. Where exactly are we in this regard? Conservative politicians have ignored science and are now treating COVID-19 as a bygone. So they've resumed their relentless agenda um, and campaign against reproductive rights and access full throttle. In June, legislatures in Iowa, Tennessee, and Mississippi all adopted extremely anti-abortion legislation. And, and really since 1973 with Roe, states have enacted more than 1,200 restrictions on reproductive health care. These range from bans on insurance coverage for abortion to forced ultrasounds to mandatory waiting periods, parental consent, mandatory counseling. It is a coordinated effort. So where are we in this exact moment? In just the first half of 2020, state legislators introduced 200 plus provisions to restrict access to abortion care. Last year, governors signed 25 abortion bans into law. So clearly we can see that the anti-choice movement is dead set on pushing their coercive platform. And this coordinated effort doesn't stop at the state level, I have to imagine. This definitely extends to the federal level. Uh, the Trump administration has ramped up and emboldened the assault on reproductive rights. The administration has promulgated gag rules and discriminatory health policy, mostly through the Department of Health and Human Services. The administration has also stacked the Supreme Court with anti-choice nominees, and they have fueled Senate Republicans' anti-abortion propaganda and disinformation bills. So I know that there are different 
I, let's say camps um, in this spectrum, right? There's uh, Republicans with an agenda on one side, and there's a lot of organizations like Planned Parenthood that are trying to, you know, help women and support women um, and their right to reproductive health. What do you think, what effect could the pandemic possibly have on uh, organizations like Planned Parenthood in terms of funding or the functioning of their uh, organizations? That's a great question. I think that the issue of funding definitely predates the global pandemic in some ways and was exacerbated by the global pandemic in other ways, of course. For example, last year, the Trump administration issued a uh, gag rule on Title X clinics, and his gag rule specifically made it illegal for Title X providers to deliver abortion care and also illegal to have doctors even share how or where people can safely and legally access abortion. So his attack um, completely strips these essential clinics of funding. And instead, the administration has funneled dollars to fake women's health centers that hurt pregnant people with disinformation and in pursuit of their so-called moral agendas. So the fundamental funding streams that so many of these essential clinics like Planned Parenthood have relied upon were gutted uh, by the Trump administration pre-pandemic. We know that access to healthcare works very differently for people across different race, ethnicity, and income levels. So how does um, access to reproductive healthcare figure in those spectrums? I think that reproductive oppression is among our national failures in protecting the lives, dignity, uh, and equality of Black and Brown Americans. Various uh, federal and state policies and regulatory policies uh, perpetuate this lack of reproductive justice. The Title X gag rule does so, as I mentioned earlier. The Hyde Amendment absolutely has a role to play here. Uh, the Hyde Amendment bans access to abortion for low-income people who receive health insurance through Medicaid. And talking about restricting access to abortion rights, we have to talk about this new Supreme Court decision that allows employers to opt out of offering contraceptives through health insurance plans. What do you have to say about that? The court upheld the administration's extreme regulations that give any employer, educational institution, or insurance provider the choice to deny its respective employees, students, and enrollees birth control coverage on religious or moral grounds. The idea that your boss now gets to decide what kinds of medical care you can and should receive is uh, a really regressive and threatening precedent for the future of healthcare. The Supreme Court jeopardized birth control coverage for hundreds of thousands of people and undercut the constitutional separation between church and state with 
its decision a couple weeks ago. So this ruling is quite the slippery slope. I mean, it's so difficult when you've met in this interview, you've mentioned two different things that are being weaponized. One is the pandemic and the other is religious freedom. So what lessons can we take away from reproductive rights under COVID? What have we learned about the system or about the agendas that we see around us? I think that the pandemic has showed us the importance of access to all types of healthcare, including comprehensive reproductive healthcare. We must now ensure that abortion care is accessible and timely um, by repealing so many of the restrictions that I have mentioned, repealing mandatory waiting periods, counseling requirements, telemedicine bans are, you know, among the initial steps that I would recommend insurance. And I think that COVID-19 has also forced us to reckon with the current flaws and shortcomings in our privatized system. Thank you, Ashley. That was a great interview. Very informative. I also want to let our audience know that since we recorded this interview with Ashley, there's been a new update on this topic. A big report just came out about anti-abortion health centers receiving millions of dollars in COVID bailout funds. And you can read more about this report in the links below. On that note, we are now closing out the Corona cast for good. Louisa, momentous moment. It was a pleasure being here, Furia. But on a serious note, I think that it was a great experience to start in the podcast and we are very happy with the future projects that we have with the Wagner Review and the Wagner Review podcast series and we are looking forward to sharing more about it with you. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on a new policy series that is not Corona Cast, a Wagner Review podcast series. Thank you.